Good evening, friends. As was just said, my name is Jess Taylor. It's good to be here tonight um, on this second night of Alpha. And um, my topic for tonight is um, five problems for a world without God. Now, this topic was not originally a part of the Alpha course, but we thought it was an important addition because uh, next week we'll move on to talking about the historical evidence for Jesus, for his divinity, life, death, and resurrection, and why we think it's reasonable to choose Jesus among other religious options. But before we get there, we wanted to discuss the primary non-religious option of atheism. And uh, oftentimes people ask whether it's reasonable to have religious belief. And uh, I think that's a fair question to ask. Um, Even for the religious person... I don't think doubt is always a bad thing. Uh, In some ways, doubt is kind of like the immune system for beliefs. You don't want to just believe anything that anybody tries to feed you. You don't want to... Otherwise, you'd convert to a new religion every time somebody knocked on your door, right? Um, But, uh, and and so so you you need a, a certain healthy amount of doubt in order to have an immune system kind of cleanse you of irrational beliefs. Um... But I I think oftentimes when it comes to uh, atheism, when it comes to thinking of a world without God, we don't turn the question around and ask, is atheism reasonable? Um, So we save all our doubt for faith and often don't express sufficient doubt for our doubts. So that's the plan for tonight. I'm going to present five problems for a world without God. In other words, five problems that I believe have no solution without a being, without the existence of a being such as God. And I'm going to open it up for a few questions before your discussion in table groups, just, just a few, um, just to kind of prime the pump for your table group times. Uh, and you, you all should have a handout in front of you, and um, you'll notice when you look at that handout that it has much more information on it than I could possibly go over in this time. That's from a much longer, like, hour and 40-minute lecture that I have done uh, in the past. Um, but if you do have any questions for me on that handout that pertain to things that I don't discuss tonight, I am going to be hanging out afterwards, and I love talking about all this stuff. Um, and, uh, and so before, uh, before um, I go into the talk, maybe I should talk a little bit about why I love talking about this stuff. I want to share a little bit of my own story. So um, uh, Fumi was introducing me as a pastor, which is true, um, but I, I think it might be helpful for you to know that I actually didn't grow up going to church. Um, I would say that my family was sort of uh, culturally Catholic, um, so maybe we went to church once every few years with, with, uh, with some family, maybe on, on Christmas Eve or something like that. Uh, my mom taught me a few prayers to say in my bed at night, but for the most part, um, we didn't have a very religious upbringing. We didn't say, you know, grace, you know, maybe except for on Thanksgiving or something like that. And we just didn't really talk a lot about God. Um, and I, I do think, to be fair, I should say that um, these these prayers, these Catholic prayers that my mom uh, taught me to say in bed at night, I would actually say those prayers. Um, just I'd be, you know, little eight-year-old Taylor laying in bed saying prayers to God. And I even back then felt like God was there, and I had some sort of like rudimentary experience of God. Um, And I I would also say that even though I've always been sort of a question asker and a skeptic by nature, um, the idea of God made sort of intuitive sense to me. Now, that's not necessarily saying anything about Christianity, 
per se. Um, that really came later, but the idea of um, of a being such as God um, made intuitive sense, a- a- as it has for most people down through history. I, I think um, it's fair to say that there's more atheism today uh, in the 21st century um, than there's ever been uh, in the history of the world, but it's actually still very much a minority view. Most people in the world, past and present, um, are religious in some sort of way. It almost seems like, um, you know, you've heard uh, Rene Descartes say, um, I think, therefore I am. I've, I've heard uh, philosophers and, and uh, theologians talk, I worship, therefore I am. You know, that, that there's something actually fundamental about human beings. There's a, there's a sort of religious impulse. And you might say even for people who are atheists or, or irreligious, they still find some sort of way to express that. Um, now, um, I would say uh, a big change for me came in college. Um, I was a business management major, uh, and I took this class uh, in the honors program uh, called Disturbing Philosophical Questions. And uh, the class was as interesting as the name for the class. Um, we talked about reasons for the existence of God, reasons against the existence of God, reasons why human beings have freedom, arguments against the fact that we have freedom. We read the Communist Manifesto, we read uh, you know, uh, Plato's Dialogues and all these sorts of uh, um, great um, works of philosophy. And I just loved it. I felt like a fish in water. I'd always wanted to talk about these topics, um, but um, I, in, uh, nobody in my family had gone to college. I didn't come, come from a particularly intellectual uh, family. We, we did love to have discussion and debate, but, um, but I, I never really got to debate and talk about these topics, so I just loved it. So I, uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to adopt Socrates' maxim. Socrates' uh, famous quote uh, is, the unexamined life is not worth living. In other words, if you're just going around life without examining the choices you're making, without uh, uh, making um, reasonable choices about your belief, that, that's not a life worth living. And so I said, okay, I'm going to adopt that. And so anything that I thought I believed about religion or politics or science or whatever, I want to I examine these things. I want to investigate them for myself. So uh, as I said, I was reading um, some of the great works um, uh, in philosophy throughout history. I was reading Kant, uh, the Communist Manifesto, reading Nietzsche, um, I picked up a religious studies minor. I started trying to visit alternative places of worship, um, places that I'd never been. I, I visited a, um, uh, a synagogue. I, I visited a Unitarian church. I tried Zen meditation. I began to read many of the uh, uh, famous religious texts of the world, um, the Dharmapada of Buddhism, the Upanishads of Hinduism, Tao Te Ching uh, of Taoism, the Quran of Islam, and uh, I also read uh, and, and was consuming a lot of, uh, of the Christian Bible, um, and uh, specifically reading um, the Gospels. And um, I was really attracted to the figure of Jesus. In fact, I would say that I found a lot of truth and beauty in a lot of different places. Um, but for me, as I was trying to kind of weigh these things and see, like, what, but what is true? Um, for me, Jesus sort of became the litmus test because whenever some of these philosophers and religious figures agreed with Jesus, I felt like they were basically right. Um, and whenever they disagreed, I felt like there was some kind of selfishness, some kind of irrationality, something that I just didn't um, really agree with. So um, I was becoming intellectually convinced about the uniqueness of Jesus. This is my first time reading the Gospels, and I just found him to be an incredibly luminous figure. And if you've never read the four Gospels, it really wouldn't take you very long. I highly recommend it. It could be life-changing. So many of the ideas I'll talk about in this seminar 
reflect the things I learned during this critical time in my life of being a seeker of truth. And uh, during this time, I, I think it's also fair to say as an aside, I had some, some personal experiences with God uh, that um, were powerful and convincing for me. Um, but that would, that would need to be a talk of a different kind. <laughs> so I'm not going to go too into uh, mystical and, and personal religious experiences. Um, I think what is important to say tonight is that um, though I'm now a committed Christian and I've spent time studying theology and I feel like I, um, uh, you know, am, am not just reading the Gospels for the first time or, or, or necessarily uh, weighing all these same things in the way that I was then, I'm still very much so a seeker of truth. And I spend a lot of time reading and thinking and dialoguing with people of other faiths, of other ideas and stuff like that. I still love that. Um, that, that what really started in my season of col- uh, in college really has continued. I've just continued to have friends of various religious backgrounds um, or non-religious. And, uh, and I just love some of my best friends um, uh, would, would fundamentally disagree with me about some of the things that I'm talking about tonight. So, okay, let's dive into our topic tonight. The five problems for a world without God. And remember tonight, we're doubting the doubter, and we'll begin to make a little bit more of a positive case for the Christian faith next week. Fumi's going to be giving that talk. But let's start by clarifying what we mean when we speak about a world without God. Now, this worldview is sometimes referred to as atheistic naturalism. So in a naturalistic worldview, um, matter is all that exists. There's no God, there's no gods, there's no Tao, there's no platonic forms or anything like that. The universe and everything that exists is in a uniform system of cause and effect. Human beings are basically like complex machines. There's chemistry involved too, but complex machines that are part of a larger machine of the universe. And human personality is only an interrelation of chemical properties that we do not yet fully understand. Uh, and then also, we, uh, from, from this view, um, we can know truths about the universe only through human reason and the senses, which are jointly used for scientific observation. So atheistic naturalism is a tempting worldview for two reasons. Um, one, to many people it seems very simple and coherent. There's, there's no extras. You don't have to believe in miracles or crazy stuff like that. Um, and second, it at least gives the impression of being honest and objective. Now, I was listening to a podcast um, from a Christian philosopher named Rebecca McLaughlin lately, and she was saying that um, one of the things that people, um, uh, non-religious people, oftentimes don't realize is um, when when they reject um, a system, uh, uh, like a religious system like Buddhism or Christianity or whatever, and say, well, I, I don't believe in that kind of irrational thing, they still have to have their own system, their own worldview. And it's worth asking, is this system, this worldview that I'm embracing, any more coherent than what I'm rejecting over here? She said that's a really important question for people to ask because it's not just defining yourself by what you don't believe. It's also like, okay, well, how do you make sense of the world? How do you make sense of reality? And, um, and there's a system involved with that. And um, as many before me have pointed out, there are at least five big problems presented by a godless worldview. And we'll explore each of these problems in some detail. So the first problem... And you can, you can see this uh, on your handout if you want, uh, on the side that says Jesus, among other options, for the critiques of naturalism. Now, the first problem is this. In a world without God, there's no such thing as human freedom. Now, the argument goes something like this. 
if man is nothing more than a complex machine governed, governed by the laws of science, then there is no such thing as real freedom to choose. Instead, we merely have the appearance of freedom, but this is only because we haven't figured out this sort of complex mixture of nature and nurture that direct us to act the way that we do. Now, you could say, that doesn't seem right. Um, I, don't, I don't think I believe that. And you, you're probably just saying that because you're religious. Um, and I just, I, I just want to say, I'm not bringing this up out of Christian bias. Many renowned atheists have actually admitted this point. So if you studied psychology, B.F. Skinner is famous for saying that there's no human freedom. Uh, physiologist uh, Ivan Pavlov and philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, Nietzsche put it, put it this way. Um, he, he usually puts it in a pretty punchy way. He said, if one were omniscient, one would be able to calculate each individual human action in advance, each step in the process of knowledge, each error, each act of malice. To be sure, he says, the acting man is caught in his illusion of volition, or, or in other words, free will. But if the wheel of the world were to stand still for a moment and an omniscient calculating mind were there to take advantage of this interruption, he'd be able to tell into the farthest reaches of future each being and describe every rut that wheel will roll upon. The acting man's delusion about himself, his assumption that free will exists, is also part of that calculating mechanism. So he's saying, even when we say that free will exists or that free will doesn't exist, we're not saying that out of a place of free will. Uh, in other words, think about it this way. Uh, we don't blame a lizard when it bites, right? We don't blame a lizard when it bites um, because it's just acting on instinct, right? And we don't blame a horse when it pees in public because it's only doing what it's programmed to do, so to speak, by this complex mixture of DNA, nurture, circumstance. It had to pee, all right? <laughs> It doesn't know how to be modest. It's a horse. But in either case, we would say that the lizard, uh, neither the lizard nor the horse had the choice to do otherwise. Well, for the atheistic naturalist, it's actually the same thing with human beings. There's no reason to put us in any kind of special category that doesn't apply to the rest of, uh, of the animal kingdom. So think of the 19th century Russian physiologist Ivan Pavlov and his famous experiment with dogs. Some of you guys might have read about this in school or whatever. So he thought that he could train dogs to salivate by ringing a bell. And what he did is he set up this experiment where um, every time he rang a bell, he would ring a bell right before he would feed the dogs. All right, so he'd ring a bell, he'd feed the dogs. Ring a bell, feed the dogs. Ring a bell, feed the dogs. Every time that it was mealtime. And uh, they got so used to this that they began to have an automatic physiological response to the bell ringing, such that he could ring the bell and they would just start drooling even if there was no food around. There was nothing to smell, right? Um, there's a funny episode of The Office where, um, where Jim, uh, every time his, his uh, computer shuts down and it makes this like little noise, like dun-dun, it like shuts down, he always offers Dwight a mint. So Dwight's the guy who likes to tease a lot, right? <laughs> And uh, so every time there's that sound of his computer shutting down, he offers Dwight a mint, offers Dwight a mint, until finally he's done this day after day after day after day, and then the computer shuts down and that sound comes, and Dwight's looking at his paperwork, and he just puts out his hand like this. And, uh, and Jim looks at him like he's crazy. He's like, what are you doing? And Dwight's like, I don't know. <laughs> My mouth. And <laughs> just starts to... So the point is that this experiment actually can translate to human beings. Now, 
we're not actually complex enough to understand the complexities behind our own sort of version of Pavlov's dog, dog's experiment. You know, it, we don't understand the human brain. We don't understand the sort of interrelation of sort of nature and nurture and chemistry and all this sort of stuff, but it all holds. So um, in the more complex sense, uh, this, this is the same for human beings. We have larger brains. We may be a species that's used to living in complex communities, but we have no real freedom to act, act against our own animal nature. We're just dealing out what's there in our DNA and what's been there in the stimulus that's around us in a complex way. That's what Nietzsche would say. Now, a popular rebuttal of this is the rebuttal of chance. Um, so, you know, uh, back with Newton, Newtonian physics was pretty robotic, but science has now demonstrated that on a micro level, there's uh, much that seems random or inexplicable? Doesn't this make room for freedom, some have asked. And on closer examination, the answer is no. And it's no for two reasons. Number one, um, it's very possible that from an atheistic naturalist perspective, chance doesn't really exist. It's just a name we give for processes we don't yet understand. So I think that's probably fair to say. Number two, even if there is such a thing as random chance, it still doesn't lead to freedom, right? Because whether you have a plane that's on autopilot or a plane that's randomly spinning out of control, in neither case do you have a volitional pilot in place. Does that make sense? So chance doesn't actually mean freedom. Either way, there's no place for a choosing pilot steering the craft. So that's the first problem, the problem of freedom. The second problem, uh, if there's no God in the picture in the world, is the problem of right and wrong. Now, I would guess that this... Um, uh, even if you haven't studied philosophy, um, some of what I'm going to say about this will sound fairly familiar to you, and you could could probably work it out and maybe have. So first of all, I, I just want to say these, these problems actually build off each other because if freedom doesn't exist, as Nietzsche suggests, um, then moral distinctions are meaningless because if people only appear to be free but they aren't really, then it isn't fair to tell a non-free being what they ought to have done. Because right? they couldn't have done otherwise. So morality assumes the freedom to choose. But besides the point about freedom, there's a second reason why naturalism creates a problem of right and wrong. And that's because the material universe is silent about morality. Can we learn about right and wrong from looking through a microscope or through a telescope? No. Why? Because by all standards for morality, the universe is both cruel and non-cruel. Right? There are things that happen in the universe that seem cruel and things that happen that seem non-cruel. Um, in other words, you can never arrive at what ought to be simply by examining what is. So you can never derive an ought from an is. Um, that's um, uh, that's a, um, kind of a way that philosophers have put it. So human beings both tell lies and tell the truth. They both murder and forgive. They discover the cure for malaria, and they invent new and creative ways to traffic their fellow human beings for profit. All of these are genuine human behaviors from a naturalist, atheistic perspective. They describe what is. These are, these are part of the spectrum of how human beings behave, about how the human animal behaves. So... Whenever belief in the supernatural is abandoned, we actually lose the ability to say what ought to be the case, what somebody ought to have done. We lose any objective standard for judging what we mean by calling an action right or wrong. So morality becomes like a tree with no roots. 
In fact, uh, Tim Keller gives this great analogy because he talks about how, um, actually, let me shelve that for a second. Let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me kind of demonstrate this point a little bit more. Um, I, I, I saw this thing come up on Netflix, and it was like a Ted Bundy's interview thing. Uh, it was a famous, um, famous for raping and murdering women um, you know, from a few decades back. And I haven't had the guts to click on it yet because I don't know if I want to like listen to him kind of espouse his views. But, um, but I remember reading in uh, my ethics class years back um, that uh, Ted Bundy used to kind of give philosophical lectures sometimes to his victims and say, you know, surely you don't think there's anything in this age of sort of scientific enlightenment, you don't think there's anything objectively wrong with what I'm about to do with you, any more than somebody else might say that it's wrong to eat a ham sandwich or something, right? And uh, now the interesting thing is, and I don't know if there's any validity to this, is that he, he apparently became a believer on death row. Um, but there's an ethical theory known as emotivism, and what it says is um, that the moral convictions that human beings have are nothing more than our emotional reactions to certain behaviors. Um, some have called it the boo-hooray theory of morality. So um, I say boo, you say hooray. Um, we're both equally human beings. It's, it's a legitimate human behavior. Humans do cruel and non-cruel things. And it's, you know this, this really shows up when somebody's a sociopath like Ted Bundy, but he's basically saying, who's going to tell me that this is truly objectively wrong, that I'm cutting against some kind of objective ethical standard? Now, I, I just want to give a caveat that in arguing that naturalism leads to a morally neutral world, I don't mean to imply that all atheists are immoral people. Of course not. Just as there are corrupt people who would claim to be Christians, there are also benevolent people who would claim to be atheists. Um, but to some extent, that only actually serves the point. The fact is that few atheistic naturalists lead lifestyles that reflect the reality that their worldviews actually deal out to them. They, they're not living according to the implications of their worldview, that they don't have freedom or meaning or morality. Most still attempt to live meaningful lives and often abide by traditional standards of right and wrong, in spite of the fact that these ideas have no basis in their own worldview. So this is a strange state of morality that we're in in our country. Um, uh, Tim Keller uh, mentioned that it's, it's almost like um, we, we're writing the moral checks of yesteryear, but we don't believe the bank exists anymore. Does that make sense? So uh, there's an increasing uh, atheism, increasing postmodernism, increasing skepticism, and we still say, well, it's, it's, pretty, it's bad to do these things, and maybe some of our, our, our moral sensibilities change a bit. But in, in essence, people are still sort of writing the moral checks of yesteryear, even though they don't actually believe that those beliefs are actually tethered to anything true about reality. Why is this the case? I think that Christianity actually offers a good explanation. It teaches that God created human beings to have a built-in sense of meaning and morality, and moral sensibilities are actually a part of who we are. And actually, there's a part of who we are that's not just physical. Um, just like there's a part of, just like, just like God is a not physical being, we have a special relationship with God by having a non-physical part of ourselves, our soul, our spirit. And uh, moral sensibilities are part of who we are. So whether or not we believe in right and wrong as human beings, it's almost impossible for us to act as if morality doesn't exist. Kind of, kind of classic instance of this, if, if any of you guys have ever read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, 
Uh, there's, there's this kind of intellectual character in the book who decides that he's going to commit a murder because this person he's going to murder is just kind of a worthless wretch anyway. And he's very brilliant, and if he can take that money, he can make something great uh, with his life, and he'd be able to benefit human society. And so he decides to commit this murder. He does, he steals the money, and then the whole rest of the book is about how his conscience just eats away at him. He can't pretend that he's not plagued by his conscience. He can't just sort of live rationally according to what his ideals were because there's actually something more primal within him that's saying something's terribly wrong. Even though I could justify this in my mind, I can't let it go. So the topic of right and wrong is very uh, close to us. It's very central to all of us. Social justice depends upon it. Human rights depend upon it. And we intuitively know that it's right to treat others as we would wish to be treated. Um, actually, uh, I heard a story recently about uh, an atheist who um, became a believer in God after seeing um, one of their heroes lecture, Peter Singer, who's a famous um, uh, atheist ethicist. And he said in his lecture that um, uh, because of the superior, superior, excuse me, superior rational development of a cow, it's actually more immoral to kill a cow than it is to kill a human baby. And, um, and so he was kind of making his case for that and his case for, for pain and the equality of that action. And this person who went to see Peter Singer was just like, something's totally wrong here. Like, how did I even get here? Something's, complete, something's gone completely wrong with my moral compass. And it caused her to go into a, kind of a period of searching, um, which led her to believe in God. So that's the second problem, the problem of right and wrong. The third problem is the problem of meaning. And I think this one's probably even more self-evident. Because if people are just matter, and their lives are nothing more than just sort of matter pushing matter. We have a, we have a bunny at our house, and it just digs holes and pushes dirt. And then digs holes and pushes dirt. And that's really the kind of view of, of meaning that comes out uh, of, of atheistic naturalism. We're matter moving matter. Um, and so now people will say, yes, but we are able to make meaning in our own mind. We're able to manu manufacture things that are meaningful for us. That's what secular existentialism and postmodernism in, in many ways is all about. But I think this view leads to some disturbing consequences. And we could talk about a lot of them, but let me just kind of use this as one illustration. So this is the illustration of Mother Teresa versus video games, okay? So, um, so Mother Teresa of Calcutta... Um, most of us uh, have heard of her hero, rescued um, dying people out of the gutters in Calcutta, um, gave people dignity as they, was as they were dying, inspired a whole, um, excuse me, inspired a whole religious movement where all kinds of women were devoting themselves to care for the least, the last, and the lost. And we would say, oh wow, um, you know, she got the Nobel Peace Prize, she got sainthood recently. And we would say that's a really meaningful existence, what she did with her time and what she did with her energies. Um, now, from an from a, uh, atheistic naturalism perspective, we'd say, well, she that's good for her. She found something that was meaningful for her. Um, but also implied in this is that you know, if somebody else finds something that feels equally meaningful for them, even if it's just meaning in their own mind, it is actually equally meaningful or equally meaningless, depending on how you want to put it. Uh, so if somebody spends as is very common, like 8 to 12 hours playing video games every day, right? 
they're, they're actually experiencing meaning in their own mind. It might be actually very intense meaning, um, but, uh, but, their, but their mama is not going to like it, <laughs> or their wife is not going to like it, or their kids are not going to like it. They're going to say, like, get off that thing. That doesn't mean anything, right? That's not going to actually matter in the long run. So as human beings, we're used to things meaning something, used to things mattering. But in this worldview, we're forced to admit that, hey, Mother Teresa and the, and the you know, um, the, the kid or the, or the man going through extended adolescence uh, that's addicted to video, video games, they actually lead equally significant lives. They're both following the meaning manuf- manufactured in their own mind, and there's no outside arbitrator. You know, maybe, the, maybe the, their mom or dad does or doesn't like it, but, but they're, they're equal in, in, uh, in terms of their moral being. Now, some naturalists will readily actually admit this point, that life is essentially meaningless and moral values are completely subjective. I remember listening to a radio interview with Richard Dawkins, and he actually admitted on the, on the radio interview, he said, life doesn't owe us any meaning. And so he said, just get over it, and we just kind of live our life. Life doesn't owe us any meaning. But in light of this, I, I want to think back to the quote from Socrates. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. But I actually think, um, from an atheistic standpoint, from a standpoint of atheistic naturalism, that's actually not true. <laughs> Because for the naturalist, it's the examined life that's not worth living. You have to try to not pay attention to this in order to try to find some sort of meaning in your life. Otherwise, you're going to be going through an existential crisis every half an hour. All right. um, The fourth problem is the problem of knowing. And I'm going to quote um, from another famous figure, Charles Darwin. Uh, And he once said this, The horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind which has developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Now, that might seem like not that devastating of a quote, but um, some really smart philosophers have sort of worked out the implications of that. Um, Specifically, Alvin Plantinga is very famous for this. So in other words, he's saying, why should we believe that the motions of atoms in the human brain, which constitute reason in the senses, have any relation to truth? And what Plantinga points out about about Darwin's quote is that evolutionary biology, if it's not sort of guided by God or the gods or the Tao or something, if it doesn't have some kind of guidance, um, it relies um, on adaptable behaviors, not on true beliefs, right? So there's a difference between a true belief and an adaptable behavior. And... um, uh, planting a, does a good job working this out. I mean, actually, um, one one good example. Um, if you're an atheist, you would say, um, if you said, why, well, why are so many people in the world religious? You would say, well, at some point, that was an adaptable behavior. It was adapt. It was good for human beings to think about uh, being religious, and it helped them to treat each other better and help with survival and stuff like this. But if you believe it's an adaptable behavior and not true, but it's that widespread, then you sort of p- prove Darwin's point that. We can have these widespread ideas, um, but we're not actually able to trust the truth mechanism in our mind because it's not existing to deliver us accurate ideas. It's still, it, it exists to help us to survive, and we can survive on, on the basis of any kind of deluded ideas. So and if all this um, is sort of a little high-minded, I could, I could go into a lot more detail on that. Um, you could make the same point... Um, 
um, starting with the problem of freedom. Because if all matter, including or, uh, organic matter, including people, is either a part of a closed system of cause and, of cause and effect like Pavlov, Pavlov's dogs, or subject to random chance like an airplane that darts in random directions, then we're still left with no ability to distinguish between truth and falsehood. Because we can't make the kind of choice that says, I'm going to reject this idea because it's not true. Ultimately, we can feel like we're doing that, but it's actually, it's actually sort of uh, predetermined by a whole bunch of other factors. That's the reason why we're doing it. So thus, if Darwin's own doubt is valid, as it's demonstrated to be by Plantinga and many others, then naturalism is not actually self-consistent as a worldview. For from the basis of naturalism, it's never reasonable to suppose that naturalism is true. So, um, you know, you can picture sort of um, a philosophical system. I, you know, um, I remember when I used to watch cartoons growing up, you know, um, you'd have somebody, it's like Looney Tunes, somebody would be sitting on a branch and they would, you know, use the saw to, like, cut off the branch, and then they would cut off the branch that they're sitting on, right? And it would hover in the air there for a second, and then all of a sudden they'd fall. Well, what happens with naturalism is it, is it creates a defeater for trusting that you could actually know something as complex as naturalism. So naturalism leads us to distrust reason, the same reason that's used to posit this complex system. I'm going to mention one more problem. And then I'm going to open it up very briefly for questions, and then we'll go into our discussion group. So the fifth problem is the problem of existence. Now, I want to tell you about a conversation I had um, with a couple of my nephews recently. Um, I mentioned that I don't come from a particularly religious family, and um, my, I, my older sister is not religious. Um, and, but she doesn't mind if I talk to her, um, her sons, my nephews, about God. Um, you know, she's like, they should be kind of weighing all these ideas. Um, and I remember I was uh, at lunch with my nephews, and I, and I asked them to just do this thought experiment, and maybe you guys could think about this with me. I said, imagine you guys that, uh, and they, you know, they're like you know, eight or nine years old, seven, eight, nine years old, but imagine a room with nothing in it, like a room that has absolutely nothing in it. I'm talking about nothing but nothing, like not even light. Like, no furniture, no nothing. It's just, it's just an empty room, empty space. I said, now imagine that that room is there, and nothing's coming into it from the outside. Imagine that, right? Um, if we went back to that room an hour later, what would be happening in that room? And they said, nothing. They said, well, what if we, what if we came back in a year? What would be happening in that room? They said, nothing. I said, well, what if we left for 100 million years and we came back to that room? What would be happening in that room? Nothing. And I said, I agree with you. I said, you know what's really interesting about, about us eating lunch right now is that we exist, that something's here, that there's something instead of nothing. And there's nothing that comes from nothing. <laughs> Everything comes from something. And I said, so the fact that everything exists, where do you, what do you think brought that into existence? And they said, God. <coughs> and I said, I agree. <laughs> I said, okay, let me ask you another question. I said, uh, you know, they, they were drawn on their, on their, um, you know, on the back of their children's menu, and they had this marker. And I said, um, all right, I'm going to set this marker down right here. And it's sitting still, right? It's not moving, right? Yeah. Okay. Now imagine that nobody blows in this marker, the earth doesn't shake, 
there's actually no movement at all. Is this marker going to stay here or is it going to roll? It said, it's going to stay there. I said, but what if there's no movement and no cause, nothing acting upon it for an hour? Is it going to move or is it going to stay there? It'll stay there. I said, what if there's nothing acting on it for a year? It'll, it'll stay there. What if there's 100 million years? It'll stay there. And I said, you know what's really interesting is that everything we know of in the universe is moving. I said, even, even in, in these like tiny little atoms and molecules in a diamond, there's still movement going on. Um, and, and they were like, yeah, we know that. Because <laughs> they're smart, they're smart kids. And, and I said, well, at some point, it would seem that there has to be an unmoved mover. There has to be somebody that started the movement. I said, who do you think that is? And they said, God. And I said, I agree. Now, the, the, the sort of summary of, of what I was talking to them is that something cannot come from nothing. In philosophy, this is what's called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. So the first premise of the cosmological argument is whatever begins to exist has a cause. So if something begins to exist, it has a cause. And the second premise is that the universe began to exist. Now, this is not a very controversial point. Premise number two is not very controversial nowadays. Back in antiquity, this was a big debate. There were some worldviews and some teachers that thought the universe has always existed and will always exist. And there were some people who thought that it had a start and it will have an ending. Now there's basically universal agreement in the scientific community that the universe did indeed have a beginning. Um, so the universe began to exist. Now the conclusion is that the universe has a cause. But if the universe has a cause, it has to have a cause from outside the universe. Does that make sense? It has to have a cause from outside of time and space. It can't get started and then reach back and sort of start itself. Right? So this is a classic argument for the existence of God, the cosmological argument. And I don't know anybody who summarizes it better than the 20th century intellectual G.K. Chesterton. He writes this. I submit this to you for your consideration. He says, For those who really think there's always something really unthinkable about the whole evolutionary cosmos, as the atheistic evolutionary, evolutionists conceive of it, because it's something coming out of nothing, an ever-increasing flood of water pouring out of an empty jug. In a word, the world does not explain itself and cannot do so merely by continuing to expand itself. But anyhow, it's absurd for the evolutionist to complain that it's unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing, and then pretend that it's more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. So he says, if we have a hard time wrapping our minds around what kind of being or what kind of force or what kind of what could cause all of this, okay, so we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. That's fair enough. We're having a hard time wrapping our minds around God. He said, but it's actually more unthinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. I mean, even my nephews knew that, right? Um, and I think that's part of the reason why human beings, uh, you know, find this, this uh, idea of God sort of intuitively, it's intuitively attractive. It's, it's, it's reasonable. One of the former philosophy professors at, at FSU used to call it primitively compelling. The idea of God uh, seems to have such explanatory power more than uh, any other um, you know, worldview or idea that human beings have um, ever believed. 
So let me summarize as I begin to draw to a close. Um, I contend there are, there are five major problems, not minor problems, for a world without God. There's a problem of freedom, a problem of right and wrong, the problem of meaning, the problem of knowing, and the problem of existence. And you can tell that some of these problems are actually problems that are existentially troubling, but not necessarily irrational, like the problem of meaning. And there are some of these problems that actually mean that this is actually a self-contradictory worldview and ought to be rejected for rational purposes. So um, for all these reasons and more that I don't have time to go into now, I find atheistic naturalism to be a completely unsatisfying and irrational worldview. When you doubt the doubter, his own view comes up wanting, much more wanting, I would contend, than the Christian faith comes up after scrutiny. So I think Christianity speaks convincingly to all these problems. We're going to continue to explore that um, in the weeks ahead. But for now, before we transition into our table groups, I just want to open it up for just, if there's any kind of initial questions, and then we're going to have uh, Zerk brought to your table to discuss this in table groups. Yeah, first question. So the issue of morality to that problem often the report is that well the idea of the social contract that you know we even if it is self-preservation because I want to keep my property or my life yes it's probably good that I should treat the other person uh, in a manner in which you know I would want to treat it so this social contract that formed communities and civilization yeah. is that standard or, or by it is the, the means by which we developed or evolved yeah. Um, morality. Yeah, so um, the idea is um, does the social contract sort of in an atheistic worldview kind of solve the problem of the fact that there's no objective right and wrong? And I, I think what we would want to say in response to that is that um, uh, unfortunately, down through history, there have been really what we would think of now as morally despicable social contracts. Um, and, so, um, and so the problem is, is um, if we decide, for example, that, um, that we want to, uh, for, you, for the purposes of eugenics, of, of having the best human DNA pass, pass down, um, we want to um, eliminate anybody that uh, is, is sort of um, handicapped or, 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 or sort of has, you know... Um, uh, sort of physical problems, we would say, we don't really want them to be a part of our gene pool. We should eliminate that. We should eliminate the ability for them to procreate, right? This is very much sort of some of the things that uh, communist Russia was, was uh, wrestling with. Um, and, uh, you know, similarly, uh, there have been societies that have said, oh, okay, well, we, we view, like in, in Nazi Germany, we view Jewish people as subhuman. Therefore, it's actually not murder, what we're doing here because we view them as accursed or subhuman in some sort of way. And we'd say, hey, this is morally despicable. Who judges and arbitrates when a social contract is that heinous? Now, you could say, oh, that's a really extreme example. I would submit to you that it's actually not that different than what we're doing with abortion in this country. What we're doing, if this is actually human life, this is like a really, really big deal in partial birth abortion, all kinds of things. Sort of anything goes. Euthanasia. And so... Um, you know, we, we can come up with these social contracts, but they don't actually stand the test of time of collective human conscience through generations. And I think that that's, that's one of the kind of limitations of a social contract. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes, that's another question. <laughs> so Ted Bundy didn't want to be a part of our social contract. So how do we judge somebody on the basis, like, are we willing to put somebody in jail? Are we willing to separate them from their families? Are we willing to put somebody to death? What, what are we willing to do to punish people who are, who are deviating willfully from the social contract? Um, and and that, that does bring up another issue, an issue of justice as it pertains to it. Maybe a couple more questions on, on a different topic. All right. What about the evolution of rights and wrong? Um, sort of uh, corollary to the last comment, um, given that there doesn't seem to have been sort of this black and white standard from mm -hmm. um, time immemorial that human beings have, mm -hmm. you know, advanced and evolved uh, mm -hmm. in terms of morality, does that then not undermine the idea of a objective standard, yeah. right? So the idea that, um, that maybe our standards of right and wrong evolve over time. And, uh, and so maybe that's, that's sort of good enough or, or the, the standard as it's evolving is. I, I, think, I think part of the problem there is, is that can really lead to absurd conclusions. Um, so for example, um, if we believe we're in the midst of evolving and always in the midst of evolving, then, then a, a, a husband who commits adultery on his wife can say, well, I don't think these kind of like, you know, uh, this sexual exclusivity is gonna exist 300 years from now, you know? And so, um, you know, that's the reason why I don't have any moral qualms with this, right? Um, like, we never know at what point we are. C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery, about how every generation thinks they're living in the generation where, uh, you know, so if you, if you would have lived 500 years ago, you, you would have thought, oh, there's, there's, there's no way that our science is going to receive the kind of revisions that it's received in the last 500 years. There's no way that our moral sensibilities are going to release, are going to receive the kind of revisions that they've received in the last 500 years. Everybody always thinks they're a part of the generation where we're basically just about there and that there's not going to be a generation, this is chronological snobbery, there's not going to be a generation two or 300 years from now who looks back on our science and says, oh my goodness, I can't believe you guys people, you, I can't believe you people thought that. Or look back on our moral standards and say, I can't even believe that, that, that you guys thought that. You know, I think of, for example, um, even, even in, a, in a Christian context, around the time of, uh, of the Reformation, uh, it was very common um, uh, for um, Christian males to see prostitutes because it was a generally held principle that men cannot be faithful to one woman. And interestingly, uh, Luther was famous for saying, oh yeah, if, you think, if, if that's what you think, then you're not actually a Christian. <laughs> so Luther didn't want any of that because Luther was like basically like you're just rejecting God's moral standards that he has said apply to men equally as well as women and there's no basis for that there's no basis for you know deciding that or whatever you know so the problem is is that we're still lacking an objective standard outside of ourselves so how do we know that we're not going to sort of change our views 300 years from now and then 300 years from that change them back and then change them back it still kind of leads to a system where there's really no way to arbitrate between right and wrong on a societal level or, or, or on an individual level. Just give a chance for one more question if somebody has a question that, that hasn't asked yet. Yeah. Um, off of that point, which is what the evolution of 
the social contract, is that right? Yeah. Um, if we take Darwin's view of social Darwinism as much as I hate it, you mm -hmm. know, um, we, and as, as sort of morbid as it is, we can figure out with time which social contract works and doesn't work. So how, so in that sense, it would be, that's how the, the social contracts would evolve and build itself into a more... Yeah, okay, so so the kind of social contract with, with the kind of like moral evolution. Sure. Um, you know, are we kind of finding out which ones work? Well, there again, the problem is, is like, what's our standard for what works? Because there's been plenty of times in human history where people have thought, hey, we're living in like pretty, pretty peaceable, prosperous times, but they're not thinking, but it's because I have slaves picking cotton for me all day, right? You know, and, and, uh, and I don't know how you get away from like communist eugenics from like, a, from like a social Darwinism standpoint. Like, how is it the case that we don't let people who we think are unintelligent or not strong or whatever how, how is it the case that we say, because, because we, we base it on the sort of dignity of every human being, human rights, uh, on that sort of idea, but that has no bearing from a Darwinistic standpoint. It's a sort of survival of the fittest. Why wouldn't we say, yeah, you're too dumb to have babies, you know? Why wouldn't we say, uh, you know, or, or our idea of peace might be resting on what a whole bunch of people are crying foul and murder for. And so I, I think it still leaves us where there's really no sort of arbitration between people's disagreements and what what some people are saying is a time of peace and prosperity another another person's going to say this is grave injustice right this is thought control this is you know um, whatever all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna um there, there's there's kind of three parts of alpha there's the like um there's the dinner part there's the sort of you know what we think part and then there's the kind of like what you think part and so we're come to the sort of what you think part and we're going to have a good discussion at our table groups <laughs>